Do you ever just want to see God throw a really solid left hook at somebody? Like, do you ever look at this world and just think, man, I wish God would kind of show up with a little more power? Like, when I say power, I'm talking like UFC power, but the spiritual version at somebody's face. Uh, I, I think like yesterday I was reading a book, and in the book, it was something what the book was about, but it, it mentioned the abuse that a lot of kids endure in their lives. And I had this re- like really strong, visceral experience of just thinking, like, God, could you just take care of that problem? Like, you smite people, right? Isn't that a biblical thing, smiting? Could you just smite somebody? Not me, but other people. Like, could you just smite somebody right now? I, I feel that sometimes. I was in Papua New Guinea uh, a number of years ago, and I spent about eight weeks there. I was working with a couple missionaries. Butch was the guy's name. He wasn't a missionary by training. He was a builder by training. He went down to Papua New Guinea to help them build churches, and they built all the churches they needed, so he stayed down as a missionary. And down there, he, he was just a rough and tumble, good old Ohio boy, but he wasn't a boy anymore. He was like 68 years old, but still down there. And, and out here where we were in Papua New Guinea is, is the Southern Highlands province. It's the Wild West. There's, there's no electricity out there. There's like two cars in the whole region. And it was just a different experience. And he was telling me while I was there, teaching me about the culture and telling me experiences he had had. And he said one time they were there and they had a sawmill. It was a portable sawmill. So they could take trees and turn them into boards, lumber that they could use to build things. And he said, somebody stole this. And there, where you are, where they were out there in Papua New Guinea, he said possession was nine-tenths of the law. law. Like, once they had it, there's not much you could do other than start a whole tribal conflict to get this thing back. So Butch was frustrated about this, so he told the guy who took the sawmill, they tried to negotiate with him and get it back, and eventually he just told him, he said, you didn't take this from me, you took this from the Lord, it was used for the Lord's work, God is seeing this, and God will punish you, and then kind of left it. A couple months later, the guy brings the sawmill back. And he said, God's been punishing me. Actually, he called Butch a prophet, right? Butch wasn't a prophet. He's just his builder. But this is is where it gets kind of serious. The the guy came back and he said, one of my wives, they have polygamous culture down there. One of my wives has died and one of my children has died because we are under God's curse. And Butch was like, I don't know about all that. Like, I wasn't trying to curse you. And I'm sorry, but we'll take the sawmill back. It was kind of one of those situations where I don't know if God was involved in that or not. I really don't know. Well, what I do know is, is the guy who returned the sawmill definitely felt like he was under God's judgment. I don't really want anybody to die, honestly. But I do want God to come and get after some people in this world. I want God to go on the offensive. Does it ever feel like God's on the defensive? Or maybe his people are constantly on the defensive? It's like, man, can we just go on the offensive? I'm not talking about like crusades. Let's just God, let God handle it. Let God go on the offensive. But I want to see that. Well, we're going to be in a passage of scripture today that talks about the Holy Spirit, and it talks about how the Holy Spirit goes on the offensive in this world. And so if you've just been, you got some aggression, you want to let it out, today's the day you get to learn how the Holy Spirit goes on the offensive in this world. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 comes in a stretch of teaching that goes from John 13 through John 17. In these five chapters, Jesus is teaching his followers. It's right before he's going to get arrested. John 18, he's arrested and betrayed. But it's Jesus teaching his followers right before he's taken to be crucified. What's interesting is John is only 21 chapters. So five of 21 chapters are devoted to this section of teaching. John wants us, and he wanted the followers of Jesus in the early church, he wants us today to focus our attention on what Jesus is saying to us. 
And Jesus talks about a number of things. Right before and at the very beginning of John 16, he's talking about persecution. He's, he's telling his followers, you're going to get persecuted. You're going to follow me. It's going to be hard. They're going to throw you out of the communities you're in. They're going to harm you. They're going to hurt you. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you, but it's going to be hard. Like, how's that for a message, right? Like, hey, guys, follow me. You're going to suffer and die. And that's what Jesus is communicating to his followers. So Jesus tells them this. And at the beginning of John, John, John chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, he's telling them about this. So we're going to pick it up in verse 4. Jesus said, but I, I've said these things to you about, about what you're going to suffer in the persecution, that when their hour comes, you may remember I told them to you. So you're not going to be surprised when something happens. And then he goes on to say, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus starts off and he says, you're going to suffer. I'm telling you these things because I'm not always going to be with you. I'm going somewhere. None of you ask me where I'm going, but I'm going somewhere else. And what's interesting about that is back in John 13, in the same part, Jesus is speaking to his followers. Peter actually said, Jesus, where are you going? Peter asked him this question. But Peter did it in a way that was very self-absorbed. They were less concerned about where Jesus was going and more that they wouldn't have their teacher with them. And this is us sometimes in life. We're more concerned not about what God wants, about where he's leading things, but about ourselves in the moment. And Jesus is telling his followers, you don't, you're focused on the wrong things. You're focused on what's directly in front of you. But he said, sorrows filled your heart because I said these things. But it's actually to your advantage that I'm going away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send a helper. The helper here is this, this word in the Greek, parakletos. It's a counselor, an advocate, a helper. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit into his church. And Jesus says, it's actually better for you that I go. This is a point somebody needs to hear. It's not the main point of the sermon today, but somebody needs to hear this. You may be sorrowful about something that's happening in your life. But God can use it to your advantage. So you may be going through something right now and you wonder, why God? Where are you, God? God, do something. And God is working that situation to your advantage if you trust him. Some of us are sitting in the season of life and you don't want to stay here. You're not happy about being here. But God's going to bring you to the other side of that if you trust him and trust his plan. Don't short circuit it by trying to do your own thing. Trust God. Trust his plan. He'll bring you to the other side of that. And Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, the helper. I'm going to send him to you. And then this is what he says next. And I love this because this is where God just starts. Jesus tells us what God's going to do, what the Holy Spirit's going to do. When he comes, verse 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I like that word convict, right? Like, come on, Holy Spirit, convict some people. What that word means in the Greek is it means to confront someone with their wrongdoing. So to expose them, to confront them with what they've done. You ever see those hidden camera shows? I love those things. Like the what would you do kind of situations. And I always like, have you thought through these things? Like anytime I see one of those, I'm like, here's what I would do. What I love is when someone does the wrong thing, 
and they come back and confront them. They're like, hey, that guy just stole a purse right in front of you. Why did you not do anything? Like, hey, this person was getting beat and you just walked by. Like, what's your problem? And they'll confront them with it. What are they doing? They're exposing what they did or what they didn't do. Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to expose the world for what it is. He's going to just put it out there for them to see. He's going to convict them of it. In this situation, the Holy Spirit's no longer the helper. He's the prosecutor. He's no longer just defending Christians. He is coming for the world. In fact, there's nowhere else in the Bible that talks about the Holy Spirit doing something in the world. The Holy Spirit is always doing something in the church, in God's people, and this is finally the instance where the Holy Spirit goes into the world and he convicts. He convicts, convicts people about their sin, about their need for righteousness or living like God wants. He convicts them about the coming judgment. He comes to them and he convicts them. But here's something I don't, don't want us to miss, because I'm like, okay, let's go. Come on, Holy Spirit. You got, you got some work to do. Like, I feel like the Holy Spirit's got to convict some hearts right now in this world. Where are you? Like, are you doing that, Spirit? But here's what I don't want us to miss. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will come to you. He's talking to his followers. And then he says, and when he comes, he will convict the world. But how is the Holy Spirit coming? He's coming to us. Now think about that. The Holy Spirit's supposed to convict the world, but he's coming to us. In other words, you and I are part of the convicting process that God wants to do in this world. God wants to expose the sin of this world, the lack of righteousness, the coming judgment. God wants to expose the world to all this, but he's going to do it through his spirit in his people. And so it's not like, spirit, I'm going to sit back kick back in the lazy boy this Sunday afternoon and like get around and do some conviction. You got some prosecution to do. No, it's saying, Holy Spirit, come into me, fill me, transform me so I can be part of this prosecuting work. Jesus says there's three, three ways the Holy Spirit will do this. Now, for a prosecutor back in this time, they would say what the charge is if they were prosecuting someone, and then they would give the reason for that charge. So they'd say, maybe the charge is this, and here's why you're being charged with it. I hope that helps make some sense of what we're about to say, because I've always read these words, and they feel like a riddle to me. Like, listen to this. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because they do not, or excuse me, verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And I read those words, and I'm like, ah, that doesn't really make sense. Anybody else ever had that thought reading this? Like, if you read this passage before, you're like, don't know what we're saying. Just flip the page. Like, chapter 17's coming up. Like, just keep reading. Push past that. Uh, i got to be honest. Sometimes in Scripture, I just don't understand what I'm reading. I look down, I'm like, that sounds like one of those riddles that I hear and just makes me frustrated, and I quit. I just don't, don't want to hear that. You know, somebody really too clever is like, hey, I learned this riddle. And you're like, no, shut up. I don't want to do a riddle. I want to live my life. And this feels like a riddle. It's like concerning this, because of this, concerning this. It's got a little rhythm to it, kind of like, but it's not, it's not a fun rhythm. It's like, that's annoying. And I just don't understand. In fact, I was talking to my sister about this. She's like, yeah, I've never heard a sermon preached on that. And I was like, yeah, me neither. I guess that's probably why I'm ignorant on this. What in the world does this mean? So it's the charge that's given concerning sin. That's the charge. And then it's the reasons given. So I want to walk through each of these to help us understand how the Holy Spirit wants to work in this world, but how he wants to work through us in it. So verse 9, the Holy Spirit's going to convict people concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Sin in scripture is primarily understood as unbelief. 
Sometimes we talk about it in terms of maybe pride, sin at its root is pride. I've heard that a lot. In fact, I've heard that about the sin that Adam and Eve committed, the very first sin at the very beginning, that their sin was pride. The problem with that original sin being pride is that the solution would be humility. So we'll just lower yourself down, just treat yourself terrible, get really low before God, and that's the answer. Now, humility is good, but that's not the key to drawing close to Jesus. Jesus says, the key is believe in me, trust in me, rely on me. And so it's not putting yourself down. It's coming to God with full reliance on him, with full trust in him. Because sin fundamentally is unbelief. It's not really believing and trusting that Jesus is who he said he is. Because if Jesus is Lord, then we would follow him. So sin is fundamentally unbelief. And here Jesus says the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit that's come to you is going to convict people because of their unbelief. They're going to see the belief and the trust of followers of Jesus and feel conviction by the Holy Spirit's power because they don't believe as well. Because they're living in sin because they, they don't believe. It's going to be your life and what you exhibit in your life that helps people come to that. So maybe you look at your own life and say, do I have the right kind of belief. I think we can tell whether or not we truly trust Jesus by whether or not we will follow Jesus at the point it costs us the most. Will you follow Jesus where it costs you the most? Because of course you're going to follow Jesus where it's easy. Like, well, that's, of course you're going to do that because like, it's probably what you already want to do. But are you going to follow Jesus where it costs you the most? That's the question about whether or not you truly believe. Uh, I remember hearing the story years ago. It's a true story about a guy named Felix Vargas. Felix was, he was trained in the Colombian military, and then he got out of the military, he moved to Cali, Colombia, began to work for the drug cartel there, and he became one of their enforcers, uh, one of their hitmen. He, he was trained in the military how to get, get information out of people, which is a euphemism for how to torture people, and so he, be, he began to do that for the cartel. He was a hitman, assassin, he tortured people. He was the enforcer for the Cali, Colombia cartel. And eventually they had a big war between two warring cartels in Medellin and Cali, Colombia. And the Cali, Colombians, which is where Felix was, they won, but it was pretty, pretty tough battle fought. So they actually sent him to Miami. He began to smuggle drugs in Miami. He said he wasn't trained in smuggling drugs. He was trained in killing people. So he was really a bad drug smuggler. And he got, ended up getting caught, getting put in prison in Miami, eight-year sentence. While he was there, he noticed this woman who was coming to visit. And so he kind of sent word to her, hey, I'd like to have you come visit me. And so she came by and and they began to talk to each other. And the very first thing she said is, Jesus loves you. He's like, no, don't, don't bring that junk in here. I just want to talk. Like, I just want to connect. And eventually she kept visiting. And, and eventually he's he like, hey, I, I would I'd love to marry you. Now, they haven't actually like, interacted at all. They're just on either sides of the glass. But they get married in prison. He's in prison. She's not. Now, she was a Christian. And I, I honestly wouldn't recommend that, okay? I wouldn't recommend meeting someone you don't know in prison for eight years on drug charges who's an enforcer for the Cali Columbia cartel and then marrying them in prison. Like, not setting you up for success, okay? Just like, as far as life decisions go, that ranks not the best life decision, somewhere below best. But they got married, and then he gets out of prison, and he just moves back to Columbia, like leaves her. Because she was just like, he just wanted someone to come visit him, right? He just wanted someone to come visit him in jail, and so... He leaves her behind, and so she eventually calls him. He's like, hey, I need to send you some stuff. What's your address? And then she shows up. She didn't send him stuff. She showed up herself. And he's like, what are you doing down here? She's like, I'm your wife. I'm living with you. And he's like, uh, whatever, okay. And so she moves in. 
like, this is love story stuff, right? This is the romance you've always dreamed of. Uh, Disney's making a movie on this coming up, right? It's one of those, just, it'll be a musical, it'll be really sweet. And so she moves in with him, and she starts going to church. She's still going to church, and she's starting inviting him, and he's like, I'm not going to go. But she went to church, and every single week she went to church, she would save a chair next to her. And people would come up and say, hey, is that seat taken? She's like, oh, it's, it's for my husband. And she did this every single week for seven years. She kept doing this, just saving the seat. She was praying for her husband. He started telling her, hey, don't go to church. If you go to church and you're there and it was like be in the evening service, he said, I'm going to lock the door and you won't be able to come back in. And he would do this. She would go. He would lock the door. She'd get back, couldn't get in. She'd sleep on the front steps. When he unlocked the door in the morning, she'd come in. She'd give him a kiss. She'd say, I love you. And she'd make him breakfast. Yeah, somebody, somebody say, what? I agree. It's like, ah, that, that didn't come up in the premarital counseling in prison, okay? Like this, this might happen. And she just consistently did this. And he just gets confused. Like, he doesn't, he has no concept, kind of like you and me, no concept for someone who would do this, would so consistently exhibit the love of Jesus. And eventually, he described it this way. He went up onto this rooftop, and he was like, Lord, I don't understand. I don't even know if you're real, but could you change me if you are? Because he had just seen his wife and, and the love she had, the trust she had in Jesus to obey his word, even when it cost her sleeping outside at night, having to love a man who was not showing her love to consistently be there for him when he wasn't there for her. And he ends up praying this to the Lord. And then that night, he has a dream where he sees the Lord using him, and he said the Lord began this transformation process. Totally changed him. And his prayer was, changed me from head to toe, Lord. The Lord totally changed him. Today, Felix and Liliana, his wife, are pastors. They're actually in Dallas, Texas. We did a little stalking last night to find out where they were. Internet, you can find anything on there. In Dallas, Texas, pastoring a church. It's actually connected with ours through the same group we're connected with. And he's still pastoring today. They're still married today. And it all came back to a wife who was so ridiculously, irrationally trusting in Jesus that she loved her husband. And the Holy Spirit brought conviction into this assassin's life because of that. So you and I are called by the Spirit for him to come into us to transform us and exhibit that kind of trust. And the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to somebody else's life because you're just showing that trust in the word of God and what he has said. So I want to challenge you, exhort you today to love and trust Jesus so much that he can use you to convict people around you with his love as well. Jesus said, I'm going to convict the world through the spirit and through you concerning sin because of their unbelief. And then here's the next one. He says, because concerning righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the father and you will see me no longer. And this is where the, it really sounds like a riddle, because it's like, okay, how does Jesus not being here anymore, how does that it, connect with righteousness at all? I don't understand that. There's two things going on here. The first is that Jesus was judged and convicted. He was convicted by Pilate, the, the Roman governor at the time, by the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin at the time. Jesus was convicted by them. But then when he was raised from the dead, he was vindicated by the Father. In other words, all that they did to convict him, to kill him, everything else, could not stop what God was going to do to raise him up, showing that Jesus, although he was convicted by humans, he was raised up by the Father. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is righteous. He is good. So because Jesus is no longer here, his body is no longer here, he rose from the dead, he's lifted up, he is the righteous one. But there's also a second meaning to this. The second meaning is that because Jesus is gone, people will see and be convicted of righteousness because of how God's people live. 
Now, righteousness is just living in the right way God wants you to live, being the right kind of person God wants you to be. And what, what Jesus is telling us here is the Holy Spirit can so transform us that we live our lives exactly like he wants. When we live our lives in such a way that people are going to see it and not only be convicted of their sin, but be convicted of what God wants to do to transform them. People are going to be convicted of this through how you live. The work is not just on the Spirit's part, it's, it's also on our part. A guy named Dennis Kinlaw, he was the president of a school where I attended at Asbury University way back in the day. And great preacher and professor, Old Testament professor. And growing up in North Carolina, Lumberton, North Carolina, small town, the mountains, he said it was his job as a young boy to take meat that they killed and rub salt in it to preserve it and hang it up outside. And the salt would keep it from you know, anything messing with it and it would preserve it pretty well. And so he said he hated doing this as a kid because you just had to rub salt for so long and his little arms would start to ache. And so he, he hated this. This is a chore that he hated the most. And so he'd be doing this and he'd do everything he could to do as fast as he could. So one day they, they got a pig, they slaughtered a pig. And so he was in charge of taking it and rubbing the salt in it. So he did a pretty quick job, rubbed the salt in it, hung it up, forgot about it. And then uh, a little while later, a couple weeks later, his mom asked him to go get, get some of that pork. And so he went and grabbed it and brought it into her. And he goes off and does his own thing. And then he hears a, a blood-curdling sound. And it was his mom yelling his first name, Dennis. And some of you have experienced this, right? Some of us experience this a lot. And you know when mom yells your name with that tone, it's not like, Dennis, I want you to come here so I can tell you I love you. It's not a, Dennis, I bought you something at the store. It's a, Dennis... Your day has come. <laughs> you will meet Jesus soon. Like, that's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of Dennis it was. And so he's like, oh, no. Like, what did I do? And it probably could have been a dozen things, right? Like, who knows what she found out. So he comes in, and he kind of sheepishly is standing at the door, not wanting to enter to face the wrath of mom. And she looks over at him, and then she looks down at the piece of pork in front of her. And he said he looked down at the pork, and it was the first time in his life he'd ever seen a dead piece of meat moving. And he said that the cut that she had made into it, maggots were pouring out of it. I'm sorry, some of you are not going to be able to eat lunch now. You're like, oh, that was it. We're fasting today, I guess. And maggots pouring out of it, oozing out of it. And he said, the only thing she did is she looked at me. And she said, not enough salt, Dennis. Not enough salt. He said he never forgot that. For us as Christians today, we look around at the world, and you're like me, you're like, God, throw that left hook. God, smite some people. God, do your thing. And Jesus looks back at us, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not enough salt. If we live with the righteousness the Holy Spirit wants to create, he will convict the world. He will expose them that they don't have that kind of righteousness, the kind of righteousness Jesus won, the kind of righteousness the Holy Spirit brings into us. He'll convict them concerning their sin because of our belief. He'll convict them concerning their lack of righteousness because of what he can create in us. Not enough salt. The final thing that Jesus says here is the Holy Spirit will convict the world, verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, it sounds really nice to say, well, God's the ruler of this world, right? No, Scripture's pretty clear on this. The ruler of this world is Satan. This world is under the authority and the power and the control 
of the evil one, the enemy of our soul, Satan. And then all of his angels and demons that he has. Now, God's still ultimately in control, but this is what makes the church so important, is that the church and Christians are the one part of this world not fully under the control of Satan. It's the one part of this world that can exist under the power of Jesus. So when we talk about like, your kingdom come, your will be done, like in the Lord's Prayer, what we're talking about is your kingdom come, your will be done, like in our lives, because this is the only place where God has, I mean, he has full control because he can do anything, but every part of this world is under the power of Satan. But the world is going to be convicted about the coming judgment, because through how, listen to this, how we live, they're going to understand that Satan is already judged. How we live, what the Holy Spirit does to transform us is going to make them aware that if Satan is judged, then everything else under him is judged. All his followers are judged. Now, judging is not like a nice word, but they're going to realize the coming judgment that will take place. On the cross, Jesus revealed that Satan is ultimately powerless. He's powerless, right? He threw everything he had at Jesus, including death, which worked every other time. He threw death at Jesus, and death didn't work. Like, he, he, he dropped a nuclear bomb that had worked every other time for every other human, and Jesus was like, oh, nope, I'm good. I'm back. And he keeps going. Nothing worked. Jesus showed that Satan was powerless. And in the same way, he showed that he's judged. And now every follower of Satan, right, those who are not followers of Jesus, stand judged. Now, how do we show this in our lives? Like, how would, how would your life or my life reveal that Satan is judged. One of the biggest ways is how we relate to fear. Our world is covered in fear. Everybody seems like it's fearful. And if it's not this, you're like, no, that's not my, I'm not afraid of that thing. You're afraid of this thing. Like, oh, no, I'm not afraid of COVID. I'm not afraid of sickness. Well, then you're afraid of losing your family. Oh, no, I don't even like my family. I'm not afraid of losing them. Then you're afraid of losing your job. No, I hate my job. Then you're afraid of losing whatever the thing is. So many people live in fear. And one of the ways we reveal that the power of Satan is broken is by living lives through the power of the Spirit where fear has no place. The early Christians and really throughout history, those who took their faith with Jesus seriously were not afraid of death. They would face it and they'd say, yeah, if I die, that's unfortunate maybe. I don't know. Go see Jesus. That, that's how they lived. It was like, I, I, just, I, I can live without fear of death. And if you're not afraid of death, then just about anything else that comes your way, the potency of that fear is gone. And they weren't afraid of death because they knew death had been defeated. Jesus had won the victory, and the ruler of this world already stands judged. I've told the story before, but I think it, it illustrates this point better than any. There were missionaries down in South America, and they one day came home and found a, a large snake in their house. Uh, they didn't say how large it was, but they said it's larger than a man. Uh, so I don't know, maybe, you know, seven, eight feet long. In other words, terrifying, okay? Like, I hate snakes. I think my theological reason is the Garden of Eden. I don't think I need a theological reason. Snakes are nasty little creatures, and they want to harm me. I can see a little garter snake, and I just want to, I like, have this rage come inside of me. I'm not asking the Lord to smite it. I'm smiting it right there. I'm going after that thing. I hate snakes. So they come home and they find this massive snake, probably like a python or an anaconda, something that can just give you a real tight hug and make, you know, and you don't want, you don't want that hug from it. And so they come home and they find this and they run out of the house because they're sane. 
And then they go tell the people who live there in the village, the, the people who are from the village, who are like, oh, yeah, it's a snake. Cool. So one of them takes the machete, goes inside, and cuts off its head, which is exactly what you should do. And he comes out, and he tells them, I've taken care of the problem. The snake's decapitated. He's dead. Problem's done. And the missionaries say, great. And they start going back in. He says, wait, don't go back in yet. The snake is dead. He just doesn't realize it yet. You know how snakes work, right? They, they'll keep twitching and moving. And he said for, for like an hour or more, they heard just banging around inside and dishes breaking and shattering because the snake, large snake, is just in its death throes. Its nerves are still twitching. It's causing chaos and causing issues, but it's already dead. The snake's already dead. The same is true for this world. Satan's been decapitated by Jesus. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has shown that someday all of his followers will rise from the dead as well, that he will create a new heaven and a new earth. And Satan knows this. And Satan right now is doing everything he can to cause as much chaos and pain as possible because he is already judged. And so as Christians, we don't submit to that. We don't submit to that fear. We don't submit to living under his authority. We live under the authority of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. We honor him. We live above fear, not because we are fearless, but because we live in the peace of God that takes away the fear. And the love, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. The love of God radiating through our lives casts out the fear. And we walk in him. And through how we live and how we show that Satan has no power over us, we'll show the world that the ruler of this world is judged. He's judged. He has no power. So what the Holy Spirit wants to do, how he wants to convict, is he wants to come in and live in our lives and transform us and give us power over sin and give us righteous lives and give us lives free from fear and free from the power of Satan so we can show the world you're under conviction. You're exposed for what you are. God wants to use you and your family and your job and your relationships to do this. God probably doesn't want to use any of us to do this international thing where we get to show everybody. He probably wants to do it right where you are. Back when I was in high school, I really hit this point where I was struggling. I think most of us have this at some point. Mine came junior year of high school. When I looked around me and saw all the brokenness in people's lives, my friends, neighbors, people I knew, and I thought, God, where are you? And I had enough biblical knowledge where I knew God was there somewhere but I started buying into this understanding that our job as Christians is just live good lives, love people, honor Jesus, and just slowly have like sin and the world just slowly creeping in on everything. And then eventually we die and then everything will be taken care of in heaven. Just kind of, it's a, it's a pretty depressing way of viewing the world, but I think it's how a lot of us view it. It's like, can we just protect our family long enough until I die, then they'll have to take care of it. Like, if we can just do it, we can just guard this, if we can just. And we start living with this, honestly, failure mentality, like defensiveness all the time. Like, if we can just protect and duh. And I had this perspective as an as 11th grader. I went to a, a conference that summer after my 11th grade year that was for men and women who were planning on heading into vocational ministry. And while we were there, we, we watched this video. And the video starts off just like depicting everything bad in the world. It's like war and disease, and abuse, and broken relationships, and it's like, I was watching, and I was like, yep, this is it. I want to like, amen it, just amen to that, because it's just like, this is what I see around me. 
And I was so, so frustrated by it. Like, this is it. Yes. Yes. Like, this is what I'm frustrated by. All this stuff in the world. And then the video flipped. And you began to see different people on the screen. And each one of them said, here I am, send me. These words come from Isaiah chapter 6. When it was a chaotic time, Isaiah is a prophet. And God comes to him. And, and he, Isaiah hears the voice, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And I'm watching this, and voice after voice in different languages say, here I am, send me, here I am, send me, here I am, send me. And then right after that, they played a song we don't play anymore because we cycle through songs so fast. But some of y'all will remember the song, Our God by Chris Tomlin. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, God, you are higher than any other. And then the bridge is, if our God is for us, then who can ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what can stand against? And, and, and I'm, I'm experiencing all this. And it just struck me. This, this is one of the key pivotal moments of my life spiritually. And I realized that we, we are not just trying to protect and conserve and be afraid of what's coming. We are standing strong against the forces of evil in this world. And the Holy Spirit is pushing back the forces of evil. And we are walking in the power and in the goodness of a God who loves us. He's transforming us and he wants to transform the world through us. So we don't look at the world and we say, oh, God, when will you do something? We look at the world and we say, God, help me to do something. Like, God, you put me here in the middle of this brokenness so I can communicate your spirit to people. I can communicate your love to people. And that lesson I learned as an 11th grader has changed my life. Without knowing it, I was grabbing hold of what Jesus is trying to teach us right here, which is the Holy Spirit wants to convict this world, expose their sin to them, but he wants to do it through me. He wants to do it through you. He wants to do it by giving you power over sin. He wants to do it by giving you a righteousness that's not from yourself, but it's him transforming you, helping you to live in ways that just don't make sense to the world around you because they're so good and so loving. And he wants you to live without fear, not under the power of Satan, but to live in the goodness of his kingdom with peace and joy. And that's the privilege we have, that God wants to use us to bring conviction to others by the power of the Spirit at work in us. So if you're like me and you have that thought of, God, when are you going to do something? God said, I, I am. I'm transforming you. I put you in these relationships. I'm giving you the capacity to love when you don't feel like loving. I'm giving you the capacity to forgive when they don't deserve to be forgiven. God says, I'm throwing a left punch right now, and it's you. And it's filled with love. And it's coming for them with conviction. And God's going to transform people around you as the Holy Spirit transforms you. Here's my question. Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit transform you and shape you so you can be used by God to convict this world? Let's pray together.